This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, we beseech you, O Lord, all of our actions, so that with wisdom and right judgment all things may begin in you, and in you come to perfection through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the difficulties with the topic that we're discussing these days is that uh, there's not enough time, because it's, it, it's one of these topics that, you know, every step along the way opens up new avenues. And so you're walking down this road, and there are all these byways, and some of them are dead ends, <laughs> but a lot of them are not. What we're going to talk about this afternoon is um, uh, really continuation in a sense of what I said this morning. That is that our faith is really not about so much about behavior modification as it is about a relationship. And it's not a simply about a relationship with the self. It's a relationship with the other. And of course, for us, the other is Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk about um, our relationship with Christ and um, how in the uh, desert tradition it's understood and how it develops and grows. Um, and I want to begin with two things. First, a brief, a, a brief sentence or two from the letter to the Philippians, St. Paul to the Philippians in the third chapter. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then uh, um, a verse later, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I choose that text to begin because there are two things there that are terribly significant. First, it's the only time in the Pauline corpus that St. Paul uses the personal pronoun, my Lord. So there's a kind of warmth and tenderness about this text. Secondly, of course, he says that um, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So that the initiative of Christ is what is uh, what, what Paul is, is bringing to bear here. And in the tradition of the desert, of course, this is the most marvelous mystery of being called to go apart into the desert, whether it's the desert of uh, Egypt or, or Assyria or Palestine or the desert of your own life. Because, in fact, everything that we're talking about that goes on in the desert, the heart is the desert, ultimately. That's really the true desert, is your heart. And so all of these dynamics go on within us. And the spiritual life is really, it's, it's, it's hard for people to understand this sometimes, but um, it's really the most remarkable human adventure that you, which you can engage because it leads you to uh, an openness to reality and not just the reality of the world, you know, nature and all of that and the, the stars and the, and the universe, but to the ultimate reality. And so it, all of the difficulties you see were understood by the monks and the nuns to be worth it all. And I was, I, I was thinking of it last night because um, 
I remembered something from uh, my, my childhood. I don't often, well, I guess I do often think of my childhood. When you get old, you think of your, your youth. But I was a little kid, and uh, I, have, I had four older brothers. And the circus was coming to town, and um, they were all going to go to the circus. And they didn't want me to come, of course. But I managed to con convince my mother that they should have to take care of it. So they took me with them. And of course, you know, I was, it was fantastic. And there was a trapeze artist, and the trapeze artist fell. And there was no net. And my brother, whom I found most repugnant at that time in my life, he had a jacket. He didn't have it on. He had it in his lap. And he took it and put it over my head so that I wouldn't see this terrible thing of this person who had fallen around, which shows you that um, even though I hated him, I loved him and he loved me. Okay. It's that love-hate thing that you can have with siblings. And that night when we went home and telling the story, and, and I said, I thought it was very unfair of God to let somebody die like that because you wouldn't have time to prepare. And, you know, I thought, gosh, this person had to see God. And, you know, nobody wants to be surprised by that. And my mother said very wisely, uh, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, she probably said, oh, you damn fool, because that was her favorite expression. But I won't say that. I won't ascribe that to her. Um, <laughs> but she did say something very wise, which stayed with me my whole life. And she said, we must always be prepared because God is worth it. And he knows that he's worth it. You see? And it's that, that's the wisdom of the desert. That living life teaches you that God is worth all of the difficulties and the pain and the, and the sorrow, not only because God is worth it, but because he knows that he's worth it. And therefore, it's a way in which he's inviting us. He's summoning us to something to look at reality in a different way. And in, in that sense, the, the desert tradition is always about realigning your thoughts uh, to a new, um, what would we say, a new sphere of understanding. And it's why monks and nuns uh, can endure, but also can be very optimistic in the midst of, um, of great difficulties. The second text that I want to share is a very brief line, again, from John Cashin. And that is that he says that we have come into the monastery to be conformed to Christ in his perfect nakedness. Now, the, the, the phrase, the nakedness of Christ, of course, occurs a number of times in the monastic literature. But this is a very important thing for us to understand as you begin to learn the, 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 uh, the theology of the desert. Because you see, it is Christ portrayed as powerless, as vulnerable. And this is not just about the physical suffering of being nailed to the cross, being tortured and nailed to the cross. Think of what being stripped publicly means. It, it implies, you see, a deep interior humiliation and the pain and suffering of being um, abandoned, unjustly treated, misunderstood, hatred being thrown at you from the whole world, being killed. And the terrible thing, of course, is that you're being killed by the very people who are nailing you to the cross. And all of this, you see, is implied in this image of the nakedness of Christ. And what it, of course, implies is that the monk or the nun the serious Christian, because in a real sense, for people like Cashin, when we, when we talk about monks and nuns, we're just talking about the ordinary Christian. 
I mean, you don't go into the desert, uh, you know, the physical desert, but we're all, these dynamics are understood to be applicable to all of our lives. And so we all have to face the, the reality of powerlessness and, and the, the terrible appropriation that we have to make of human suffering that will come into everyone's life, no matter how perfect or joyful. This brings us then to what, what, the, uh, what the, uh, the, the desert tradition understood, although they didn't say it in these ways. But you see, for them, this drive towards union with Christ was really the focus of their entire existence. And you will see in the, in the, in this, in the literature of the desert, as well as in later monastic literature, you will see this theme of a kind of drivenness to come to intimacy with Christ crucified and a tremendous respect for the celebration of the mysteries, which would mean, of course, the Mass, even though a sister told us that Mass was not celebrated every day. But they prepared for it all through the week. And there will be there are many times in which your worthiness or unworthiness to go to or to receive the sacred mysteries is talked about because it becomes something that impels you to struggle and make the effort in order to be ready to meet Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So that there is a kind of Eucharistic goal, even though there is not this Eucharistic theme as we would call it today of daily mass. Therefore, the whole of the monastic life is understood to be that the, the, the grace of God is transforming one into this uh, person who has been called by Christ to intimate union so that that union can, uh, can, um, can have the outcome of uh, being ready for Christ, for Christ to take us to the Father. Jesus Christ is really, I, I often think of this um, at, at, during the Eucharist, um, during communion, you know, we don't know what God is doing in us, in our souls, when we receive Holy Communion. There is a way in which irreverently we could say that the Father and Jesus are talking about us behind our backs, you know, because Christ is, Christ is really taking us in the Eucharist to the Father. And they are really thinking about us and loving us and giving us the gifts, the helps that we need. And you see these graces that come to us through the sacraments. They, this is not like God takes a bucket of grace and general grace and, you know, throws it over the world and you hope to catch some rays like you would if you were, you know, in the Florida sunshine, you know. The graces that come to us from the sacraments are very specific. They're tailored to each of us. They are the ways in which God knows what we need and what he wants to give us. And he wants to give it to us so that we will be happy. And ultimately, he wants us to be happy with him forever. And so there is a, a dynamic, a Trinitarian dynamic that is part of the Eucharist. And of course, the, 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 um, the desert monks and nuns intuit a lot of this uh, in ways that were only later more explicitly stated. They certainly understood that this drive to have a came from their very nature. And of course, what, it, what we mean by that is that the drive towards spousal union, I mean, everybody, you know, most people want to get married. But whether you even call it marriage or not, you want to find someone that loves you, that accepts you, that knows you and accepts you as you really are. And of course, we all know these human relationships fall short, even, even the best of, of, of marriages, they fall short of the, this profound yearning that, that drives us to find someone. 
And it was this spousal, this urge towards spousal union that the, that the desert directed towards union with Christ. And this is why, of course, in the tradition, and Sister uh, and I may mention this tomorrow, it's why we, the, as the fathers of the church called Christ the spouse of the soul, every human soul, man or, this was not about gender, in spite of today's uh, struggles in, in our culture. This is about who Jesus Christ is in, in, in the hypostatic union of his human and divine natures, having communion with us in our human nature. The drive towards spousal union in every human person's life is meant to be an anticipation of that ultimate spousal union in heaven. You see, it's really, it's the witness that there's more. And that's why it, it has to be imperfect. It has to fall short. There's never going to be, a, 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 even the perfect marriage has to leave us somewhat hungry. If we are a mystery to ourselves, and I presume that you are a mystery to yourself as I am to, my, to me, then we know that the only one who can fulfill, can make it, the only one who can reveal ourselves to us is the one who knows us. And that's only going to happen when we awaken in eternity. And when Christ looks at us and calls us by name, we will know then that we are known and we'll know who we are finally, completely. Therefore, this, this, this drive towards union with Christ was not simply about the consolation of experiencing the nearness of God or being sure that we're doing God's will or being able to help other people. All of these good things, it's about something far beyond that. It's about really being in union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all of the blessed. And that's why the early monasteries actually came to be thought of as paradise. And there, there are even iconographical images of the monastery as, as, a, as a kind of anticipation of heaven. Uh, one time, I remember when I was much younger, somebody we were looking at one of these paintings of the monastery as heaven, and somebody said, uh, well, is living in a pri Dominican priory like this, living in heaven? I said, well, I think I would... I think we first have to talk about hell before we can talk about heaven. <laughs> uh, it's an imperfect image, but yeah, yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, the, fratern the, 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 the fraternal charity of the desert is really an anticipation of heavenly love. That's what it, and that's why the, the, the monks of the, of the desert were so solicitous for one another. It's not just being socially aware or trying to help others, or being in a self-help program. It's about something transcendent, something beyond, something eternal, everlasting. And these are the, this is the atmosphere, you see, that filled the desert, and why it had such an intensity about it, and why you have these stories of men and women who were heroic. They weren't heroic because in that age people were more hardy. They were heroic because the intensity of their union with God liberated them to think about the other. Because what is it that leaves us uh, limited in what we do? It's because we're so bogged down with ourselves. And I mean, who, you know, what is your greatest cross in your life? Probably it's being who you are. I mean, that's my problem. I mean, I'm my favorite person on a good day, but I'm the person I dislike most on another day. And we all try to redesign ourselves. This is the lesson that the desert teaches us. Live in the truth of who you are, but look at the truth of who God is. So that the call to transcend...
love, and union in order to attain to a radical, exclusive relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, is the way in which the, the desert teaches us what it means to belong. You see, we all want to belong. We want to be incorporated. Of course, now we have all this inclusion business in our culture. Well, this is true inclusion. To be summoned by the triune Godhead to participate in the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How? By living day, the daily life that's been given us. We, we, the desert teaches us not that we live a, a different life, but that we live the very one that we've been given. Here we are this afternoon. This is part of it. It's not going to start when you leave here. It's not going to start when you graduate or when you finally get rid of certain sins or faults or you find a good spiritual director or whatever. It starts now. It's here because God is present and he's, he's busy. He's active. He's doing something. Jesus Christ, therefore, is understood to be the spouse of the soul and our natural and supernatural end is this call to respond to that love in uh, a relationship to Jesus Christ. What this requires, of course, is what the desert calls, uh, and you'll see it in the conference, renunciation. It means you have to renounce a lot of stuff. And most of the stuff that you have to renounce is what the sister referred to the other night as the, the, the baggage. You know, how, how long can you spend telling the, 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 the rosary beads of your sorrows and your troubles and your ailments? You know, I mean, I love to tell people my troubles. Uh, you know, I don't really, but uh, I could, yeah. We've all had sorrows in our lives and some very serious pain. In the desert tradition, one never denies nor represses emotion or pain or suffering. But one has to discover through the relationship with Jesus Christ the way to endure, to bear, to suffer, to let it do its work within us. Many times people, um, the secular world thinks that religion is used as an antidote to religion, I mean, to, to pain and suffering especially by religious people. But anyone who has studied the desert tradition knows that um, a relationship with Jesus Christ does not become the way, it's not an antidote to suffering, in fact, just the opposite. The more intimate one is with Christ, the more vulnerable one is to pain and suffering. And why, how do we know that? Look at the cross. Christ, risen and glorified, still bears the marks of the passion. And so the, the, a relationship with God, intimacy with Jesus Christ, is not going to deliver you from pain and suffering. It's going to teach you the way to endure it, or to understand it, or to accept it, and to renounce all the ways in which you may try to avoid, or ask God to deliver you from it. It's why one has to be a little bit careful. You know, sometimes they say, be careful what you ask for. But I would say, in light of the, uh, the radicalness of the desert tradition, we have to beware of giving God his marching orders. You know, sometimes we have a list of all the things that we want God to do for us. And, you know, certainly our Lord tells us in the gospel that you, know, you can ask for this mountain to be moved from here to there. And I'd say, go ahead, but be careful. Because there is a way in which in the desert tradition, you may have to even renounce that ability to ask God for what you want 
and constantly be asking him what he wants and telling him as a consequence that you're willing to do what he wants. And that's what makes, you might say, a spiritual um, a soldier, a, a spiritual athlete in the desert tradition. And so it's a, it, 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 it's a, it's a call to a, a, a maturity. The desert tradition presumes that people who engage in this search for God in developing an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that they have a certain amount of human maturity. And you can see how easily it would be to misunderstand and misconstrue things if we let religion infantilize us, and where we just become people who present to God a list of what we want, and we hope that he'll answer it, and we can't always figure out why he doesn't, and why isn't God doing what I want, etc. When the real question is, why am I asking God to do what I want? And shouldn't I, as a more enlightened Christian, be willing to let him have his way? Because he's much wiser and more intelligent than I, of course. So that this idea of renunci renunciation is very central to uh, developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, in the conferences, of course, there are three levels of renunciation. To renounce, of course, does not simply mean that you let people take all the, the extra added attractions that you have away from you. Renunciation is a very active idea. That is that you throw things away from you, and you only keep what's necessary. Cashin records that in the wisdom of the desert, there are three levels of renunciation. The first is renunciation of material goods. That is that it isn't that you can't have them, but you, shouldn't, you don't need a superfluity, but you only need what you need. And our tendency, of course, is to keep things in an avaricious way. I was reminded of this um, just a while ago because I got a, an envelope uh, from uh, another house of our province and uh, the, the, in the note, it said, there is a box of your belongings up in our attic. This box of my belongings must go back to the 1970s, when I left that assignment and went to Rome. And, uh, and I packed up my precious belongings in a box. I don't remember a single thing that's in that box. And yet it's been there all those years with my name on it. And so I said to the, the person, yeah, well, just throw it out, throw it in the dumpster. You know, well, what if there's anything worth it? I don't think there could be anything worthwhile in it. Yeah. I'm sure that you all have, even no matter how small your space, don't you find things that you, you can't part with? And you, you know, it, it, we get so easily attached. And it can be as something as small as, you know, a little phone or whatever, or a piece of clothing. Uh, it's, it's all these strange things. And the desert tradition is about a self-inventory, an ongoing self-inventory where you renounce. The second level of renunciation is that you renounce all the things that belong to you, all that are your own. And here, of course, the desert is talking about not so much material goods, but the, the ways you have of looking at things, you, that you renounce your view of reality. You're open to being changed. You let other people invite you to change rather than you always inviting them. You're willing to change your ideas, your attitudes. And finally, of course, the most remarkable is the third level of renunciation, wherein one is called to renounce everything that is not God. Now, of course, only God is God. Everything else is not God. 
imagine, renouncing, treating all things as though they were unknown, unknown to God. That's a great thing. That's the kind of radical interior disposition. You see, although there are external uh, expressions of these renunciations, I think you can see right away that this is really not simply about the structures or the disciplines that are imposed. It's about an inner freedom that we don't, you know, we don't all possess. Very few of us do. Not that you could let everything go and only cling to God. This is a remarkable thing. This is the kind of clarity that the, the, the silence of, of the desert produced. Therefore, um, one had to be very clear that one had a good head on one's shoulders. So when we talk about maturity in, in, in um, developing the relationship with Christ, this is where, as Sister mentioned this morning, the, the monastic virtue of discretion is so important. Or, um, you know, common sense in a lot of ways. The whole of the conferences of Cashin can be considered an exercise in discretion. Because what is discretion? Discretion is really um, the judgment whereby everything is understood in its right order in moderation. There, there's no excess, either of the bad things or the good things. You just you, you have enough sense to take things and use them as they should be used. And this kind of balance, this isn't easy. And so, of course, there's a whole, the, the second conference is all about discretion. And while it is not always the easiest conference to understand, there are some points that are very important. And there's one story that I think is extremely, it's kind of charming, actually. But um, in the, in, for, for Cashin, of course, discretion has at least three basic moments. The first moment, if you're going to learn how to have good judgment in the spiritual life, in your developing your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to have a healthy hesitation about your own judgment, your own opinions. Now, this is for some of us very difficult. I don't want any comments from the peanut gallery here. <laughs> I, would, I, I think I would be, I've been wrongly accused of being judgmental, uh, very opinionated. I can't imagine why. I think that's been a terrible injustice. But anyway, you need to have a healthy disregard for your, you have to doubt. Like, even when you know for sure, you have to say, well, you know, there is a chance that I could be wrong. It hasn't been my experience, but I'm sure it is some people's. <laughs> the second is, of course, that one has to be open to being formed by the tradition. And of course, in the desert, it was the tradition of the elders, but you could say it's the tradition of all those who have gone before us. In other words, that there's a wisdom in what has gone before us. And revolution is not perhaps always the best thing. There has to always be continuity. And that's why the monastic life has always had a certain conservative value to it, especially in external expressions. Because discontinuity can leave you afloat you know, you, 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 there has to be this, just as you have to have a kind of hesitation about your own judgment, you have to have a confidence in what you have received. And then thirdly, and Sister mentioned it this morning, there has to be what, what the, the tradition calls logismoi. That is, there has to be someone that you've really told the truth to. A person that you have opened your heart to. And this is not easy to find. 
This is not simply telling people your sins or your secrets. It's revealing your thoughts. And here, you know, this is the issue so often in the desert tradition. That is, you can discipline your body, but how do you stabilize your thoughts? Concentrating, thinking, pondering, deciding, choosing, reviewing, analyzing. The stability of the mind is difficult to achieve, not to achieve. And so discretion requires that you learn some stability of mind, that you're not just all over the place. Because like butterflies, you know, our thoughts go here and there and And so what we're talking about here is, it's true, there is a, a serious external discipline, but this is really more about when you have to discipline your interior self. And I'm sure you've had the experience, you're supposed to read a book or you're supposed to study something and you're sitting down and you're doing it very well and all of a sudden you're thinking about going home at Christmas or what's going to happen when so-and-so comes and you go to a party or what you're going to wear or whatever, all these, or your laundry and all, you know, where did, where did the mind, how did this happen? How did this slip away? This is to say nothing about trying to pray. The desert was not naive about this. And it encouraged monks and nuns to sit every day and ponder. This is why Lexio Divina, that is the repetition of the scriptures that Sister uh, uh, spoke about, is so important. Because Lexio is really the training of the mind. It's you keep bringing your mind back. You keep gently bringing your mind to focus again on the sacred text. You keep bringing yourself to repeat the words of the scripture. And this is part of the training program so that when you do end up turning to the Lord in a face-to-face -face, um, encounter, that you're not running away. Okay. So that uh, discretion is very important. Uh, um, and there's a story here that I, I find very charming. It's the story about how um, if you're going to find someone to help you, that you're going to, to whom you're going to entrust your logismoi, you have to be careful how you choose him. And the story is about two monks who are both elders. And um, uh, I'm going to call one, this is, shows you my, one, one, one is uh, Abba, um, what would I say? Abba, everything's perfect. He's clean, he's neat, his hair is combed. He didn't wear shoes, I'm sure, but you know, if he had them, they'd be shine. Uh, and then you have pa, uh, Abba Scruffy, you know, kind of. Maybe, maybe whatever he had for lunch at Sunday's habit, I don't know. There's a young monk, and he's deciding who's going to be his spiritual father. And of course, there's no choice, right? There's no contest. It's Father Nidnik. I mean, he's, got, he's the one. And so he goes to him, and he seeks his counsel. But it turns into a very bad uh, moment, because when he tells his spiritual father that he is tempted every day to um, leave the monastery and go into town and get married, and he has thoughts about um, uh, sexual congress and all this sort of thing. Well, the, uh, the, the elder is just horrified, and he says, you, you can't be in a monastery and be thinking these thoughts. You, know, you just don't belong here. You've got to get out of here. Uh, you know, I never have these thoughts. I you know, always live fasting, and I've lived a perfect life. And this is a life for people who don't have these kinds of problems. So the monk is devastated, and he goes off. And on his way, he meets Father Scruffy, who says, uh, he, look, he can see that he's downcast. And he says, what's the problem? And he gives him his story. 
And he said, isn't that strange? Because I've been here 50 years and I think about it every day. Um, go to your cell for one more day and be quiet. So he then goes to the cell of, the, of Father Neatnik and he raises his hands in prayer and he prays that God will take the temptations that are on the young monk and give them to Father Neatnik. And of course, the end of it is that Father Neatnik comes out of his cell pulling the hair out of his head and screaming because he's never been tempted before. And so he has no compassion. Now, the point of the story isn't the two elders so much as it is that the young monk didn't make good judgment. He didn't have discretion. He didn't have discernment, you see. Why? Because he thought that gray hairs and old age and neatness were the, were the ticket. But they weren't. You have to look deeper. And this is, of course, a problem of mistake that we all make often, you know? So that uh, discretion becomes extremely important in, in all of this. Now, I, I want to say a few things, because I know we, we, I don't want to go over to board, but I want to talk about prayer. Because the relationship with Christ, it, it's true, it depends upon all the things that we've talked about, but there is a way in which it culminates in the sacraments and in the life of prayer. Now, prayer, of course, here, I'm not talking about saying prayers. I'm not talking about um, the rosary or the prayer to St. Michael or all these various prayers, the, the mercy chaplet. Here by prayer, I mean, first of all, I think, I mean cult, that is worship. Prayer is, before all things in the desert, the psalmody. And that is the psalmody that is prayed aloud by either the, 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 um, the anchorite in his cell or as the monasteries developed by the monks together. But in between these times of the day when you said certain psalms, there is the saying of the psalms, the repetition of the psalms. That is that you keep, it's, it, the life of prayer is really not so much about the words as it is what, what the repetition of the words begins to produce in one. And it's like, it's like you have a big, let's say you have a, a, a huge piece of rock that's huge and you have a little drip of water over a long period of time what happens it wears away the rock you see and it has tremendous one drop has tremendous power to eat into the stone and that's what the psalmody is really you see that it eats away at the hardness of our hearts and so the the the, the, the resident of the desert has to have faith and confidence that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it will do its work. Besides the psalmody, of course, there is the Eucharist, which is, of course, prayer par excellence. But it isn't just my prayer, because it is the prayer of Christ giving himself again to the Father. So again, I'm being drawn into this Trinitarian mystery. And then finally, there is this thing that we call mental prayer or private prayer or private meditation which is really, for the, for the desert, it's something that flows out of the psalmody and out of the Eucharist. Prayer, in that sense, is elusive. You can repeat the words of the psalmody, but it's not so easy to engage the heart. And, you know, you're, you, you, you think you're doing it, and then it disappears. Or you think that you're, you're listening to God, and then you wonder if it's your imagination. I mean, there are so many ways in which prayer is elusive. And this is why if you are not steady, 
If you don't learn the way of perseverance in prayer, you will never come to a fully mature relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a lifetime of work, really. It's a lifetime of labor. It is not a, it is not a terrible labor, but it is, it is a labor. So that when we're talking about prayer, we're really not talking for the, in the desert or in the, the fathers of the church. We're not necessarily talking about long periods of mental prayer, but rather that, these, that, the, that the, the, the scripture and the sacraments set us in a way of remembering God through the day. And of course, you might begin with little moments and then gradually they grow and they can grow into an habitual awareness of the presence of God. So that prayer, of course, is really critical if you're going to develop a real relationship with God. Because prayer is then our silent communication with God. It isn't so much saying prayers, though that's a perfectly um, uh, wonderful thing. The fickleness and instability of our thoughts impinges on the difficulties of prayer. And so the two projects, if I can put it that way, go together. What does this require of us? Well, one thing that it requires is faith in the efficacy of the sacraments and prayer. You have to believe that prayer does something. In other words, when the church says certain words, let's say in a baptism, when the church pours water over the, the head of an infant and, and recites the Trinitarian formula, what happens? Well, God does something. You see, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, does something. What does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit into the soul of that newly baptized baby where he will reside and establishes this relationship which can never be erased or reversed. And it's a tremendous thing. But if you don't believe in the efficacy of the sacraments, it's going to be very hard for you to, to persevere in a life of prayer and relationship with God. The same is true in the divine office. I mean, here we are celebrating the divine office. I mean, when we stand and turn with the Dominican community and sing, oh God, come to my assistance, oh Lord, make haste to help me. I mean, God isn't sitting up there saying, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> I don't think so. He is, because he's thinking and interacting with us, he's sending the spirit into our hearts to give us what we need. Now, why doesn't he let us know what he's doing? This is the frustrating part. I think Gregory the Great is probably the first person in the, in the tradition to answer that question. And he says it very simply. He says that God doesn't let us know what he's doing in our hearts because we would try to help him. And he doesn't need our help. He doesn't want our help. And of course, we, what we try to help him with, we think it's with good intention. But you know, you never, no one is saying to God, could you get off the throne for, but you want to say, could you scooch over a little so I can help you out, you know? I mean, I certainly have often tried to help God. Um, I went through a period of my life when I kept saying to God, you need new secretarial help because we keep making these appointments and I show up and you don't. I mean, this, is not, this isn't fair. Uh, but God is never going to answer any attempt to make himself accountable. So if you try to do that, it won't work. I think I should really bring this to a close now. Yeah, so, um, and then you can ask questions. But, um, yeah, there, there's tons. We, we really did make this an overnight, and you have to bring sleeping bags. And, yeah, that's next time. Okay, let me ask you if there are any questions about all of this. So um, Father, you mentioned that uh, you should sort of, you know, the, the highest sort 
for form of renunciation is renunciation of everything except for God. Yes. Um, so how do you uh, how do you not um, or avoid getting or attached to things in life that are not inherently wrong? Uh, like for example, like you know maybe like friends or social gatherings or. How do you how do you maintain that renunciation while also not being like a well I, yeah I mean I don't think problem. that there's the question is how do you um, in light of this third level of renunciation wherein you renounce everything that is not God how then do you live life and have a normal life with friends and all the things that you need it's not that you can't have them and love them and use them. It's that you can't be attached to them in such a way that you would prefer them to God, or that they run, what would I say, in competition to your commitment to God. You know, so that's what. Now it is true that in the mystical life, if you're called to the mystical life, there is there there certainly are many mystics who have been called by God to renounce every even the things that are good. But for most people, that doesn't happen. You know, and certainly there is nothing contradictory to renouncing the things that are not God. When God has called you to live a life where you have to use certain things, that's, that's, the, that's the life that he's given you. So, you know, but it doesn't mean that you have to be attached to them unduly because if you're discreet, if you have the virtue of discretion, you accept things and you use them, but you don't let them drag you in. Is that... Uh... <laughs> in other words, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> I know, I'm like, that, that that makes a lot of sense, but I find myself like in circumstances where I get sort of caught up in the moment, and I don't really think about you know no. actually, yeah, what do I do in the moment. That's know? right, that's right. But on the other hand, you know, this is not something that happens by by the time you're thirty years old. You know, we're talking here a lifetime, mm -hmm. and gradually, you know, we 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 only develop incrementally spiritually. It only happens. And, you know, it's quite possible that by the time you're older, you'll see things differently. Yeah. But, I mean, when you're young, you have to be involved in things. That's how you learn. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. Yes. You had mentioned um, accepting where you are. Yes. And I was wondering if you had any advice about discerning, like, if you're in a situation where you're feeling unsatisfied or you're not happy about where you are, do you have any advice for discerning if that's okay and that's just part of the process versus being unsatisfied because you really are in a situation that is unfilling and you're not living up to your potential? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a very good question. The question is, uh, if, if, if you can say that you should accept your life as it is and where you are at the moment, how is it that you can discern whether or not God is calling you to something else, especially if you're unhappy or dissatisfied? and maybe your potential isn't being realized in your present situation. Well, that's precisely what the, the, the discernment and discretion is about, is figuring that out. I mean, how, how do you do that? You use the head, and you think it through, and then you seek advice, and you seek advice from someone that you can trust, and then you make a choice, you make a decision. You take the responsibility for your own life. You see, you can't, there's no way that you can say, well, I did this because Father so-and-so told me to. Well, you could say that, but it's not a very good thing to say. Uh, you know, you have to take responsibility for your own life. 
but you have to but but it will depend upon you might say the integrity of your own relationship with God and your openness to hear what others would have to say because sometimes you know I, sometimes people come and seek advice but they don't really want to hear what you've got to say because uh, it's too difficult yeah. but that's the best I can do because of course this is not we're not in the desert where you have a spiritual father that tells you exactly what to do you see where you say yes you say he says you say he says jump and you say how high kind of thing you know it's not like that in this regard of course in the tradition there are several ways of understanding the relationship of obedience to a spiritual guide but in the desert it's clearly that you seek the advice and you obey the word of the abba or the ima there are other traditions you know uh, where in uh, there you might say well we 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 would follow a more as dominicans we have a more Augustinian idea where we don't have a spiritual guide, but the community forms us. So it's a little bit different idea. Uh, but um, this is in the desert, you know, you don't have any choice. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Um, I was you were talking about how good prayer engages the heart. Yes. And I wanted to learn more about engaging the heart in prayer. Is it an act of the will? And how is it related to your emotions? Um, it is. A, it is an engagement of the heart. Oh. Yes. <laughs> the question is, uh, in speaking of prayer, what does it mean to speak of prayer as an engagement of the heart, and what is its relationship to the emotions? It is an engagement of the heart, but it's an engagement of the heart in faith. So it may not be affectively very satisfying. So if you sit down to pray, let's say you spend 20 minutes a day praying the scriptures, you may, you may feel, uh, or you, may, you don't want to do it, or you know why again? Uh, it, 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 it is not, in fact, it's not often connected with the affect, with the emotions. Sometimes your emotions suggest something different. It has to be an act of the will and the heart given to God in faith. And, and you see, in baptism, we, we don't realize the gifts that are given in the infusion of the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The, the resource is there, but you have to call upon it. If you depend on your emotions, they'll betray you. You know, I remember recently somebody was telling me that um, he was sitting down to pray, but he kept worrying about his laundry and he thought, well, I'll just get up and do my laundry and then I'll come back and be able to pray with. But of course, once he went away, he finally did come back. But then he wondered if he had really taken off the, the turned off the machine. I mean, one distraction after another. So there has to be a very disciplined approach to prayer. But prayer is elusive. There's no question about it. You can you can spend a half an hour praying and maybe there are five minutes when you're really all collected. But you have to stay there and you have to keep gently bringing yourself back. It's always a signal that things aren't going well if you begin to beat yourself up because you're distracted or you argue with yourself. I've got to get myself, I've got to. Now, once you start that, the tension grows and in a way the battle is lost. There has to be a, a, a gentle tranquility. Are you surprised that you're thinking about what's for lunch when you should be praying? No. And this, you can either incorporate it into prayer or you simply gently turn to, to Christ. Or, if we use the example of the desert, 
you would simply turn to the scriptures and start reciting something that you like. What was the responsorial psalm from yesterday? The Lord is. Um, no, no, it wasn't that. It was uh, something about. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot what it is. But let's say the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. That's the kind of thing that you can take into your, and repeat, and it will draw you back slowly but surely. But yeah, you're, I mean, that, that's the big issue in the life of prayer. And that's why a lot of people don't persevere. First, you and then. Um, so, since the sacraments are a big part of perseverance of prayer, yes. When we receive communion and we have that time to pray, yes. what should we be praying? Or how, how can we be most receptive to the grace that God wants to give us through uh, the body? The, the question was, um, when we, since the sacraments are such a big part of the life of prayer, what should be our disposition or how should we uh, pray when we receive the Eucharist? And I, I, I don't think anyone can determine that. You could, of course, obviously direct address to Christ would be the most natural thing, where you speak to Christ of the condition of your heart. You open your heart to him, speak of your love or your need or your poverty. Or you could turn and think about him, you know, and how grateful you are and that he be glorified. Or you could speak to him about his relationship with his father. I mean, there are so many possibilities. You simply have to... Um, well, there's a, a nice little book that I should tell you about by a Dominican, a 20th century Dominican. Um, it's called From the Eucharist to the Trinity. It's available on, on Amazon. What's... Bernardo? Bernardo, yes, Father Bernardo. B-E-R-N-A-D-O-T. And it's not, a, it's not a big book, it's a small book, but it would be very much what you... He talks about the experience of the Eucharist in a much broader way than just Jesus and me kind of cuddling together. Not that I, I mean, I've done that too, and I'm going to continue to do it. But it's, it's about something greater than that. I, I think in the life of prayer, you have to be ready to be drawn outside your circle of comfort sometimes. Yeah. Um, my question is kind of um, a follow-up of uh, Nick's question, which is, uh, you know, when one is distracted by, you know, other thoughts when, when during their prayer, is that more of a, a um, is that more of a, a, a rowdiness kind of in in the flesh, or is that kind of like a problem, some problem with your, with the spirit, and then like, and I guess like how, how would um, the desert tradition kind of like some method of like kind of oh, going back to the sacred scripture, kind of train either that the, the, the flesh or the spirit. I don't know how that well, the question is when you have distractions at mm -hmm. prayer, where do they come from and how should you get rid of them according to the mind of the desert? Well, where do they come from? They come from the, the world, the flesh, or the devil. How, how are you going to name who is the particular origin of any single temptation, I mean, a distraction? Probably not possible. You might sometimes know, but rarely. How do you get rid of it? There you have to gently again turn to Christ himself, I think. Either Christ in a direct address or Christ present in the word. That's always, the word of God is always your safe, um, what would we say, guarantee that you're going in the right direction. So that if you're distracted in prayer, to open the scriptures and read a line from the Psalms or if you're reading a lexio, if you're reading a continuous section of the Bible, just go back and read another sentence or two. You, you know, it can happen that for, let's say that you pray for a half an hour. You can spend 20 minutes of the half hour just trying to get your mind back. But if you patiently endure, there will over time, 
uh, come a facility. In the life of prayer, there are very few short-term rewards. There are mostly long-term rewards. So if you're thinking, you know, like sometimes people will come to spiritual direction and say, um, oh, my prayer life was just awful. I mean, I, I, didn't, I, I really didn't uh, have even a, a single uh, day when I had, um, you know, when I was really present to, to prayer. Well, that's no shock. Because we're so, uh, we're so unstable in our minds and our thoughts. It takes a long time to learn. And that's why I keep using the word elusive about prayer. Um, it slips away from us, and we have to keep gently calling it back. Turning to Christ in need, in poverty, is very important. Why? Because it's clear that the, 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 the fathers of the church that God wants us to depend upon him rather than on ourselves. And that's really the whole point of renunciation, that we don't depend upon ourselves. And so this poverty in prayer, this kind of distraction, becomes an expression of our need to depend upon God. One more question. Um, in regards to renunciation, yes. there's minimalism that is, that is kind of taking hold in the in, in the world, I guess. Um, and I was just thinking about uh, how do you uh, distinguish a person who lives a life of gathering and collecting things, and then you go to a life of poverty and, and so on and so forth, and you switch one vice of collecting things for the vice of enjoying being deprived and, and so on and so forth. So what I mean is, um, when you take that vow of poverty or whatever, or you yeah. want to live that that life, how do you know that you're not doing that for yourself and not for for Christ? Well, probably you are doing it for yourself as well as for Christ. Oh, oh the question, yes. I think you're saying, how do you know when you when you do things in an extreme, either you renounce everything or you collect everything? How do you know that you're doing it? for God and not for yourself. Correct. I don't think, first of all, that you can do it just for God. I mean, when you first begin to make these renunciations, there's as much self-investment as there is divine in interest. Because we all have, we want to become someone. And that desire, it's not a bad thing. So it, I mean, why does it have to be? Well, first of all, to talk about the extremes is contrary to the desert tradition. Because de renunciation and discretion are about balance. And we could use St. Thomas's axiom in medio stat virtus, you know, virtue is in the mean. So as soon as you get to the extremes, and the extremes, whether you're collecting, whether you're a hoarder, or you, you know, don't want to wear any clothes, uh, the, the, uh, they're the same problem. They're the same problem. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's in the mean, it's in the reason, it's in the balance. Now, what, what you're really talking about is a heart that is not yet pure. That is, that you do the right thing, but you have impure motives. Why did I become a Dominican? For pure motives? Well, I think maybe one. I don't know. Maybe. I hope. But I had a lot of impure, what I would say, not. I don't mean unchaste, but in, I had a lot of self-interest uh, in becoming a Dominican. Now, that quickly <laughs> was shattered when I saw the reality, especially the reality of the people. <laughs> you know, this was not what I thought it was going to be. 
And uh, my eldest brother was also a Dominican, and uh, he was part of this drama. Uh, you know, he made my life miserable. And, um, but that, I, I discovered that this was what God wanted, and I embraced it. And, uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, I've been happy. You know, and as they say, happiness is a much overrated commodity. You know, <laughs> what is happiness? <laughs> uh, so I don't think you can be, I don't think you're expected to do this purely for God. I think it, it's some, these are all things that you grow into over, over a lifetime. That's why in the desert, it takes a lifetime. That's, you give yourself to this for a lifetime. Uh, you know, you can't just do it for 10 years and then take off. People have tried it, it doesn't work. Anyway, thank you very much for your uh, attention.